In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today, author Lawrence Wright, thinks a lot about religion. He wants to know why people choose one faith over another, especially when what they choose seems, quote, absurd or dangerous to an outsider. This question has led Wright to investigate some of the world's most complicated and secretive organizations, from the People's Temple in Jonestown to the Church of Scientology. His book on Al-Qaeda won the Pulitzer Prize in 2007. Lawrence Wright has a unique first-hand experience as to the power of belief. I grew up in Dallas in the Methodist Church, and it was despite the fact that Methodism doesn't have a reputation as being kind of a, you know, hellfire and brimstone, the first of the churches that we went to in Dallas really was that. And then we graduated to the Methodist Church downtown. My dad taught Sunday school for many, many years. You know, Dallas back at that time was the most pious city in America. We had the largest... Methodist, Baptist, I think the largest Episcopal church and one of the largest Catholic churches in the entire country. And uh, at the same time, we had the highest murder rate and the highest divorce rate, you know, all the things that go along with uh, excessive piety. piety. Yeah, so it was, and I was very pious as a um, teenager. I was in a group called Young Life and um, genuinely, or you were responding to pressure? No, I was. I was. Well, there was both of those things. It right. was. You know, I, I had moved around a lot. As my dad was a banker, and we moved uh, quite a lot, and it was hard for me to establish roots. So when I got to Dallas, and this, you know, young life came along. It was a social club for me, but also it was the first time I understood the. Um, you can bend yourself into the shape of the organization the way it wants you to be. And also, the more pious you are, sort of the higher you climb, the more important you. So I got to be a part of it. The more you put it on. Yeah. Well, you say those things, and it's... And you want to believe them. I, I was not consciously trying to deceive anyone. At the same time, you know what to say. You're, you're heartfelt and you're yeah. genuine, but at the same time, you realize that there's right. a, there's an approval system here. Yeah, and I think that that experience um, was um, formative in some ways for me to be so interested in religious matters and why, you know, I, I people are always 
you know, reporters especially, fascinated by politics. But you can have strong political views and it doesn't affect your life at all. Mm-hmm. But if you have strong religious views, they probably dictate much of your behavior. It's puzzling to me why uh, with most journalists, it's just embarrassing to ask about what people believe because it's not supposed to matter. Did you leave the area to go to college? Did you? Yeah, I went to Tulane in New Orleans, which was a city least like Dallas that I could find. And you could uh, buy beer in Woolworths, and you could uh, drink at 18, and uh, there were, you know, a lot of things. Of, Not very uh, pious there in, well, in French also, Quarter. By that time, I kind of shed that, but uh, I was actively looking for a way to live a more bohemian life. I felt very constricted in Dallas. Was writing something that was on your mind even at an early age? Yeah. Yeah, it Had was. you written in college? I took a creative writing class. You know, I was not a distinct— No school paper. No, I used to like doing that stuff, though. And then um, after I graduated, um, you know, the Vietnam War was going on, and uh, I became a conscientious objector and spent two years of alternative service teaching in Cairo. And uh, that's where I, I became involved for the first time with the Arab world. And, and when the the boy from— Dallas becomes a conscientious objector. How did that go over back home? You know, I, my dad was a war hero, and I wanted to be like him. I was in ROTC. I expected, you know, to, to follow in his footsteps, but, you know, there was this parallel problem going on, which was the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. which was despicable. Different war. And we, it, was, it was a bad war. And, you know, for a person, a young man like me who wanted to serve his country— but did not want to kill people for the wrong reason or risk my life you know, for something I didn't believe in. It, it just was a terrible—my father and I had horrible, horrible fights about Vietnam. Did you have any brothers? No. No, I had two younger sisters. So you were it. You were the yeah. scion. Yeah. Did you ever make peace with them about that? Yeah. You know, I wrote a, a memoir uh, about growing up in Dallas during the Kennedy assassination and in America during the Vietnam era. I, in the process of doing that, I talked to my parents a lot, and, and I let them read the manuscript. And it was a very healing experience for all of us, I think. When does writing become a career decision for you? When I came back from Egypt in 1971, I decided that I was going to write an article for <laughs> I decided I was going to write an article for The New Yorker. I hadn't contacted them. And, they didn't uh, but, know it. <laughs> no, no, they had no idea. My folks had a little lake cabin uh, up in uh, Quitman, Texas, in East Texas. And so my wife and I moved out there for six months while I wrote Letter from Cairo. And uh, there was a... <laughs> Report from Cairo. Yeah, so there, it, it was a RFD, you know, mail, and there was a, we had a little, you know, box out on the road where you raise the red flag, and the mailman stops. And I sent my manuscript into The New Yorker I'm sure this isn't true, but it seemed that it came back the next day uh, from Quitman, Texas, to Mr. Sean's desk to back equipment with a, you know, a little rejection card in there. And that was, you know, my first attempt at, at becoming a writer. It would, it would be many, many years later that I actually got a chance to write for The New Yorker. You're in Cairo. You're married. You know, um, this is an odd story because... Uh, you know, I went in to—I had to get a job that uh, was 
uh, 50 miles from my home, and that wasn't a problem. I wanted—I was so sick of America at that time, and the argument over the war was so, so devastating. And I just wanted to get as far away as I could. And it had to pay very little, and it had to be nominally in the service of the United States. So I—and uh, the bedpan jobs were all taken, which normally is what a conscientious objector does, but this was during the Nixon recession, and those were all taken— so I thought I would go to the UN and, you know, get a job, and they'd send me far, far away. And I went to the UN, and they said, no, we don't do that, but here's a list of American institutions abroad. And I look at them, and one of them, American University in Cairo, had an office across the street at 866 UN Plaza. And do you remember Huntington Hartford and yes. Show Magazine? I thought you might. Well, you know, he had a famous office. And I realized that it was in the same building. And I thought, I'll go over and peek into Huntington Hartford's office, and then I'll go upstairs and ask for a job. So I did that. And, you know, I walked in, and I didn't—I knew that there had been a war in the Middle East, but I wasn't—you know, it wasn't the war that I was focused on, you know, and— um, uh, and I didn't know that we didn't have any diplomatic relations with the uh, with Egypt at the time. I'm not even sure what language they spoke. But I walked in, and 30 minutes later, they said, can you leave tonight? And I said, well, no. Um, my girlfriend's back in Boston, and I haven't told my parents what I'm doing. And can you leave tomorrow? Well, yeah, I can go tomorrow. So I can <laughs> make a couple phone calls at least. I went back, and I, I told my girlfriend, now my wife, I'm going to Egypt tomorrow, and I don't know where that leaves us. And uh, I'll be gone for two years. And and then um, and I called my parents from JFK the next morning, and told them I was going to Cairo. And I flew to Cairo and landed, you know, late at night. And the next morning at nine o'clock, I taught my first class. After a couple of weeks, um, I was really missing Roberta. Back then, you didn't make telephone calls or, you know, international calls and stuff yeah, like that. So, your letters were passing. Sure. And at some point, I said, um, you know, I, the terms under which we left were, you know, you can't go, you, you just couldn't live together in Egypt. You know, it was uh, a very conservative society. Yeah. And uh, if I invite you to come, that means we'll get m m m married. Ah! <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, our letters crossed in the mail. I asked her to come, and she said she was coming anyway. And then— it, Did you name your first child Huntington? <laughs> no, but that would have been uh, some—then the question became where to get married, because there was this idea that was somewhere in the back of my mind that if I got married in Egypt under Islamic law, I could have the additional three wives, which was an option. I wasn't sure that I wanted to exercise, but, it, you know— it could be, uh, you know... You could have pulled it off. It's a contingency. I don't think I have the management skills. Yeah, over there, they insist you be married. You can be married as many times as you want. Yeah. But they just insist that you be married. So you're there for two years, you come back. Yeah. And then what happens? Uh, then I talked, uh, started the long road of trying to start a career in as a writer. And you moved to where? The first job I got uh, was in Nashville for the race relations reporter. I was the only writer for a long time, but... Uh, we would go into situations where, you know, there was racial conflict, and oftentimes the local press was biased or not paying attention to it. And uh, so it might be about, you know, the civil rights movement in the South or uh, Indians. You know, the Indian movement was underway at the time. Uh, school desegregation was very active. All those things I got a chance to write about. It taught me quite a lot about how 
you know, to actually write an article. But it was a matter of being plunged into it. Was there a mentor you had then? A very crazy editor uh, named Jim Leeson. Um, In Nashville. Yeah, Jim it was a strange man. Um, and uh, he, uh, he, he, the whole culture was a little strange, to be honest. I, uh, Jim, when I went to apply for the job, I was a pretty good tennis player, and he asked about that. And so um, he asked if we could play tennis the next day. So I show up in my tennis studs, and he goes out and plays me in his street shoes. And, of course, I beat him pretty soundly, but uh, but still, the the notion that he would play tennis in street shoes was... Um, and he, he, he wound up firing me when I wrote a memo suggesting that we reorganize the... the I was probably I deserved to be fired. I imagine so, but it was a it was another test uh, to be plunged into the freelance market. I first became familiar with you and your writing in the Olympia Washington story, um, the piece that was entitled "Remembering Satan," which you wrote as a book as well. These were yeah. excerpts from a book. There was a two part lengthy excerpt in the. Uh, edition of the New Yorker, and I first became familiar with you, and I, I mean, I was just supposed, you know, like knocked out by this piece. I thought, you know, how on earth is this possible? Had you written pieces like that? I mean, the Scientology piece, the book, and uh, Going Clear, which we're going to get to that, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, this piece. Uh, there's uh, there's some fascinating people either putting themselves or putting other people through some living hell here. Mm-hmm. Was this the first such piece you wrote, the Olympia piece? No, I think I'd, I'd, I had written about, um, you know, a, a lot of different— I even wrote about Satanists and, you know, uh, people of all sorts of— I mean, if you're a reporter and you have a passport to write about anybody, uh, and I took full advantage of that. But the, that remembering Satan is kind of a— uh, stereotypical type of article that I like to write about, which is, um, for one thing, it's, it's a discrete world. You know, in this case, it was, uh, you know, this world inside Olympia, Washington, that had been infected by these hysterical memories of s- satanic ritual abuse, uh, which never occurred. But a man was convicted of these crimes. He confessed to them because he remembered them. And there was, other than his... Uh, memory. There was no evidence of. If I remember correctly, no one else was sentenced to prison. To Only that. Paul went to prison. What's his relationship with his family now? Or do you even know? It's very broken. As far as you know, I, I, I haven't talked to Paul in a couple of years, but um, you know, it, it, he's married again. You know, he's he started another life, and uh. Uh, but uh, you know, it's an example of uh, how the mind can be so persuaded. Of uh, you know a false reality that uh, and, and do you think that, everybody's capable of that? I don't. Is I, that don't, a lesson I, you've I don't know if I would say that to whatever degree. Not not well, capable of that, I, but creating a false reality. One of the things that has been uh, an education to me as a reporter when I'm out interviewing people that have been, for instance, in Al Qaeda or you know people that have come out of you know I interviewed the children of Jim Jones and you know I talked to people who went into Scientology. They're not crazy people, and they're not stupid. And, you know, they're, they're often, you know, if there's a commonality, there's idealism. Uh, you know, there's a, a longing to make, you know, change history, make something of yourself. And uh, that's, 
you know, maybe that's one of the most dangerous elements of our human nature is that we, it's the better parts of our nature that sometimes lead us into real dangerous areas. But with the better parts of the natures of Jones's children that got the better of them. Well, you know, they were, they were essentially captive to him, so, but, and they survived, thank God. Uh, they were off playing uh, basketball in a tournament in Georgetown, Guiana. Um, so they weren't when the killings jumped, went when down. the killings went down. But the, uh, it's always, to me, it has always uh, underscored the danger of these kinds of fanatical belief systems. I, uh, there were these three boys, uh, two adopted. Uh, Stephen was a natural son, and he looked very much like his father, Jim Jones, uh, with the kind of Cherokee cheekbones, and he's a very tall and striking, handsome man. And um, then there was um, Jim Jones Jr., who was black, um, and uh, adopted. Adopted, and then the third adopted son was Tim, who is this big redheaded guy. Tim, these boys. When I talked to him, it, Waco was going on at that time, the Branch Davidian episode, and Tina Brown was the editor of the New Yorker, and she had wanted me to go to Waco. And I said, there are more reporters in Waco than there are Branch Davidians. I just, but I was, I was convinced that this must, you know, I'd seen the children, some of the children that were sent out. I thought this must have happened before. And I found these three boys who had never, then grown men, never told their story before. And I don't know why they were willing to talk to me, but Tim, when I got to him, uh, he, he demanded that we do it in a, a restaurant in a public place because he didn't want to cry. And he had never told his wife, his current wife, what had happened. And he wanted to say this story one time. Now, bear in mind, Tim Jones is a massive fellow. He can he can press 100 pounds with either arm. You know, he has an immense physical presence. And we went to the restaurant, and within a few minutes, he was pounding the table and sobbing because Tim is the one who had to go into the jungle and identify 900 people, his real parents, his adoptive parents, his wife at the time, his children, everybody lying on the ground. And uh, it makes an impression. Did he ever confide to you or, or even just discuss to you? What he thought was going on there, what he thought Jonestown yeah, yeah, was. Yeah, they, they, they all knew that their dad was crazy and that this on was On behalf headed, of what? What was he doing there? You know, he was giving these suicide drills regularly. You know, they break out the but Kool-Aid. Before the suicide before drills, the what, was the pur- suicide. what was the purpose of Jonestown? Oh, the, the stated purpose. Oh, well, the stated purpose was to, they were, Jones was intensely paranoid. He had the feeling that the government was persecuting him, which was not really true at all. But one night, the entire church disappeared. Mm-hmm. You know, they all went secretly to this little South American country with, a, you know, in the, in the middle of the jungle. They'd been preparing it. The boys a had A religious been, uh, utopia they wanted. Yeah, and it was just a, you know, it was like a, you know, a, a, a little summer camp type of thing. They'd built Quonset huts and so on, and they were living near a river, and they built an airstrip. I remember reading on this thing online where they said that Jonestown was this training ground where they were breeding 
MK Ultra operatives who were capable of committing murder on behalf of the government, and then they'd have no memory of it. Well, you know, no, I'm not it, saying that that's true, but I remember reading that once. I was fascinated. When I by was that. writing about uh, remembering Satan, when I was doing the, you know, the multiple personalities were supposed to be the product of satanic ritual abuse, and uh, there was a big rise in multiple personality disorder. And uh, one of the theories was that the multiples had been created by the CIA in order that one personality could become a spy and you know deliver messages that other personalities inside the same human being wouldn't know about. Lawrence Wright's New Yorker article, The Orphans of Jonestown, came out for the 15th anniversary of the 1978 massacre that killed over 900 people. Listen to more conversations with writers who take on complicated issues, like David Simon, who wrote the TV show The Wire, but started out as a beat reporter for The Baltimore Sun. I think I was very fair as a reporter. You know, some of poverty is about personal responsibility, and some of it is not. Some of it is systemic and and, and a result of societal forces that are profound. Take a listen in our archives at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest Lawrence Wright prefers taking notes on index cards over using a computer. You can only imagine the number of cards Wright used for his book Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. After it was published in 2013, documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney asked Wright if he'd consider an adaptation. 
We'd worked together before. You know, I, I had done uh, this book about al-Qaeda called The Looming Tower. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had my little acting venture. I, uh, I didn't want to travel with it. You know, I just hate touring, you know, doing the book tour thing. You know, I had seen uh, Anna Devere Smith do Fires in the Mirror at the Public Theater in 1992. And I, it was the first time I could see that journalism and theater could be married. And I fascinated by that. So I did a one-man show called My Trip to Al-Qaeda, and I did it off-Broadway uh, for about six weeks and in a few other cities. And Alex saw me do it in Washington. We decided to make it into a documentary, which we did for HBO. We hit it off. Alex is is a... Is a uh, his nickname from childhood is Tiger, and it's a you know, well-chosen name. And he's a very skillful storyteller. And it takes those qualities to take something as complicated and, about an organization as vindictive and litigious as the Church of Scientology. It takes somebody like Alex to put together a movie like he's just done. One of the things I thought when I saw the film, and I mean, all my friends and people who know me personally, uh, it wasn't lost on them that Within about a week of returning from Park City for the festival, I went there to have a vacation with my family. We yeah. just tacked on an extra weekend to see some movies because I'm a big fan of uh, the festival. Um, and it wasn't lost on my friends. that Within about a week after that, I was back on a plane to London to go shoot a film with Tom Cruise. <laughs> right. And Tom is a friend of mine. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I consider him a friend in the business sense, but we don't get to see each other that often, but he's always very kind. And as people who know Tom know, he's a great person to be in the trenches of movie making with. He's very hardworking and very, very um, passionate about the work. Uh, But when I saw the film, one thing I didn't get, and maybe it's there, maybe it was in the book, and maybe it's in the film, but I I, I mean, I watched this film with intense scrutiny. There wasn't any sense to me of what are the people who are in Scientology and remain in Scientology and who are dedicated to this, what do they perceive they're getting out of it? Because yeah. I have some opinions about that, what yeah. people have told me. Well, What does you know, it do for them? And why are they there? Especially when people go into Scientology, they don't, you know, they don't go into it because it's a cult. They go into it oftentimes because they're looking for something. Such and, as? Well, you know, sometimes they're spiritual seekers or they're, you know, you might be uh, one of those people that goes down in the subway and someone says, well, would you like to take our personality test, you know, and um, sure, Oxford capacity analysis, it sounds like, you know, might be, and, you know, well, we see that you have a little trouble uh, communicating with people. Well, that's true. Well, we, you know, we can they help know what you. To say. We can help you with that. Or in the case of Paul Haggis, um, you know, he had a, a girlfriend that he was having trouble with and said, we, we have a course that can help you in your relationships. Yeah. You're and, in pain. And the truth is, oftentimes, they can help. It's like going into therapy. People do benefit from it. So this initial exposure to Scientology is often very positive to people. What about the people like Travolta, people who seem to have the world on a silver platter and everything is going their way? Well, that wasn't true when he got in. He he was a you know troubled young man uh, who was in his first movie in Mexico. He confided to a, an actress who was on the set, you know, he's having these difficulties. And... Um, she was a Scientologist, and she gave him some auditing, which is what Scientology calls his therapy, and gave him a copy of Dianetics and so on. He had an experience which 
happens to a lot of Scientologists when they're being audited. He went exterior. In other words, he had an out-of-body experience. He had the sense that he had left his corporal being and could look around the room and, you know, see things behind him and so on. At the time, he was taking a course when he tried out for this welcome back cotter. Mm -hmm. The teacher had everybody in the class turn their direction. I think it was CBS Studios, you know, but telepathically send the message to the executives that uh, that John Travolta is right for the role, and he got the part. <laughs> and so he always credited Scientology with putting yeah. him in the big time, as he said. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, he really did feel that it had changed his life. But it's one thing to get into it, and it's another thing to get out of it. If you are a star like Travolta was at one time the biggest star in the world. The biggest. And uh, you have put your name down again and again and again as a Scientologist. You're identified with it. And they have tapes of you discussing your darkest moments. Right. Like if you and I were sitting in a Scientology auditing session right now and you're my auditor and, you know, and I'm holding the cans which are attached to the e-meter and you're probing uh, and asking me very impersonal questions about um, my life and, and things that I would not want to disclose to anyone else except in this very confidential, confessional atmosphere. Excruciatingly yeah. so. Material that is actually secretly recorded, sometimes videoed. And then it becomes apparent to you that if you decide to leave, um, the church may use some of that against you. And I talked to that. I talked to a guy whose assignment was to go through all those old auditing sessions on John Travolta and find stuff they could use against him because they were worried that he was going. He was going to go over the wall, yeah, right? In the piece, in the film, the one thing I found that was uh, disturbing was that I mean, and you correct me with this this assessment, and that is that uh, there are celebrities and wealthy. Uh, public figures who uh, tithe a certain amount of their money, millions of dollars, to this organization. A second tier, if you will, and this is my description, a second tier, if you will, are, you know, middle Americans, middle right. income, who often go into debt, yeah. uh, often uh, go into dangerous amounts of debt and unwise amounts of debt in order to pay for these auditing courses yeah. and so forth and to give money to the church. And then there's people who are poor, who have nothing, who wind up trading in-kind services. They become kind of, they become like a labor force for them. And they they, they get 40 cents an hour, according Mm -hmm. to the film. And and, and they're doing a lot of um, work that benefits other people. In the film, they're saying that these people are Maintaining the hangar of Cruz's airplanes. Well, not only maintained it, what they did was uh, refurbish it. They, they they built all the furniture. They painted it. They you know they essentially took an empty hangar and made it into an office and a place for his planes and all these elaborate. Uh, have you ever been in his uh, hangar no. in Burbank? Well, he's got uh, you know these you know big decals and stuff like that and you know, banners hanging down. It's it's a pretty swank. Uh, environment and they they handcrafted a limousine for him and oversaw the reconstruction of his tour bus and they you know refurbished his house and these are people who are paid fifty dollars a week many of them joined as children so you know they're impoverished and they 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 have no place to go they have you know and if 
Or if they do, they don't know it. They, yeah. Then, you know, of course, maybe it may be the case that you know, their families and all are in the church, and if they left, uh, none of those people would ever speak to them again. Do you think the people who were the beneficiaries of this kind of this stuff do they know what's happening? Yes, yeah, so there's no question that uh, Tom Cruise knows what's going on inside the Sea Org. And I hold Tom to account. Uh, I single him out in particular and because uh, there are only two ways that the abuses that we chronicle in the movie and in my book, there are only two ways that they can be addressed. And one is that the IRS decides, well, maybe we should reexamine that tax exemption that we were bludgeoned into giving them right. in 1993. Now, now, explain for people who don't know, because this is a fascinating part of the film. It was during the time that uh, um, Hubbard was alive, or was the settlement reached after Hubbard died? It was after he died. And, and apparently he had a brigade and, and, and had been raising a lot of money, and he had a, and he had a lot of cash at his disposal and was just shelling the IRS and litigation to maintain their status. Yeah. And finally, the IRS just caved and said, well, okay. Well, here's the situation that, that, Describe that, what that happened. David Miscavige found himself in after Hubbard died. Uh, he wrestled control of this organization. And Hubbard had decided not to pay the taxes. And so by 1993, the Church of Scientology was a billion dollars in arrears, and it didn't have a billion dollars. And so this was an existential moment for the church. They had to get a tax exemption. And moreover, the IRS hated them because, you know, in the 80s, Hubbard had infiltrated uh, all these, uh, you know, the Justice Department, the IRS, the uh, you know, Food and Drug Administration had all these Scientology spies inside the government until the FBI broke it open in what was called Operation Snow White. And 12 people went to prison, including Hubbard's wife. So the IRS, among other government agencies, did not look kindly on the Church of Scientology. So how do you just imagine how you would go about getting a, a tax exemption from the IRS? Well, the Scientology way was to launch 2,400 lawsuits against the IRS and individual agents to hire private investigators, to follow agents around, to go to conventions where they might be drinking too much or fooling yeah. around. I don't have a billion dollars to pay the taxes, but I've got $50 million to lob some grenades at you. Yes, yeah, and so— until you and they, they, they essentially— Big gamble he took. They, uh, they won. And they won in Why such a— Why do you think a, they won? My personal feeling is twofold. One is I think that the IRS just did cave because you know, it was a deal. The, the deal on the table was we'll give you the exemption and, and all those lawsuits will go away. And they did. And so— uh, Did they say we'll, we'll, we'll give you the exemption and take away those losses? Would you have to pay us some amount of this money? In $12 million. Dollars. And that's all, that's this, all. the IRS that's required? All. And uh, moreover, it was such an overwhelming exemption. The church has manifold different entities, you know. Uh, but even Hubbard's novels are considered to be scripture and tax-exempt. And uh, the church now has the authority to determine which parts of itself— should be tax exempt. Who was it in the film, if I, if I remember correctly, there's someone I think is an individual you cite who says to Hubbard early in his career, the only way you're going to get rich is if you start a religion. Oh, there were about 10 people he said that to. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that Hubbard really, I think he really did believe that. But let me get back to that, that question of, you know, just to, to touch back on Tom Cruise before we finish that. If the, if the IRS reexamined 
after the licking it took uh, from from Scientology, if it decided to go back and reexamine that, that might force change inside the church. But I haven't seen any evidence that the IRS has the appetite to do this. All who's, those, the, who's the senator on the West Coast? Senator the, Ron Wyden is, is 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 looking into this, and so you know that's a possible. But the other way that change and reform could come in Scientology is that some of the celebrity megaphones turn around in the other direction and demand change. And nobody has benefited more from Scientology than Tom Cruise. Nobody is more identified in the public with the Church of Scientology than Tom Cruise. Nobody has brought, lured more people into the church than Tom Cruise. If you ask people... Name one member of the sure. Church of Scientology. That's the He's one the member. Yeah. And uh, and moreover, it's a powerful. I mean, if you look at, you know, he was the number one box office star. So you had Travolta, then uh, then Tom Cruise, and you know, and also Will Smith, who started a, a Scientology school. Although he says he's not a Scientologist, he was one of the top. He was number one. So you have one, two, three, the most powerful actors in Among the, the most world. Powerful, yeah. And if you're a young actor standing out in central casting waiting to get— Maybe it's not a bad idea if I stop by this center. Well, when you're standing in line, they'll be passing out brochures saying how to get an agent, how to get ahead in the business, come to the Celebrity Center. They make that direct link. Yes. And also, back in the old days, the acting— uh, schools like the Beverly Hills Playhouse right. uh, was run by Milton Katselis, yes, who was my teacher. He was apparently a wonderful teacher, yeah, and he was a Scientologist. And did he ever try to recruit you? Uh, I think I wasn't there long enough. I was there for under a year. I went mm. briefly, and uh, Katselis was quite a character. He was tell quite me a about character. him. I'm fascinated by him. Well, Katselis, uh, he said something that although it was very arch. And very um, uh, kind of, uh, you might think this was egomaniacal. He was nonetheless right. There was a guy up on stage doing a scene. I was in this class. My then girlfriend got me into the class. This guy's up there doing a scene, I'll never forget. And and Katselis is giving his notes on the scene. And the guy starts to debate him. He says, well, yeah, I don't think it's really. And Katselis says, I beg your pardon? And he says, well, I don't. He goes, well, I think it's this. And he goes, what it is is, and Katselis is, is now insisting and being a little more, because he was a very powerful guy yeah. uh, rhetorically. And he goes and uh, says it again, and the guy debates him again. And Katselis says, he said, we're not here for you to debate what I tell you. He said, you come here and you pay me for me to give you my opinion. He said, I'm not interested in your opinion. Of my, <laughs> yeah. I give you my opinion, and you listen. He turns to the class, he goes, and that's it. We don't discuss what I'm saying. This isn't a debate. I say what I say. You listen. You write it down, perhaps, and we're done. And um, Scientology, I have found, and this is, uh, I mean, I, I find it odd, but at the same time, I find it kind of fascinating, nonetheless, where Scientology says to you, this is what you were put on this earth to do. And, and, and it gives you that license and that freedom. Mm-hmm. You tell your parents, 
your wives, your children, everyone in your life, that nothing must get in the way mm-hmm. of this thing. This is the goose that lays the golden egg. Yeah. Movie stardom, you are, you, are, you are different. There's an exceptionalistic nature to who you are as a person, and the only way you're going to survive, I mean, to stay in that orbit out there, in that spaceship, living that way, that's a very difficult thing to do. And I think when uh, so many of these young people, when they, uh, when they come, you know, it's, it is a young person's game when they get into it. So many of the people that went into Scientology, and this is true of anybody that tries to become an actor, many people who try to become actors, they leave high school. They don't go to college. You have to go right, right. away. Nearly everyone we're talking about is uneducated. Yes. And so you're in your vulnerable, intellectually f- vulnerable. And and also you are risking everything. Your friends are going off. They're going to get law degrees and stuff like that. And you are out in you know Hollywood eating dog food hoping to be a movie star. Right. There's a sense of inadequacy that you haven't filled in the great blanks that all your friends are doing. Right. And, well and so you – Along comes Scientology, which says, "Why bother?" None of that matters. Yeah, we can. You can supersede all that because yeah. we will give you. Over yeah, all that. you you will you will learn the secrets of the universe and you'll acquire superhuman <laughs> powers. And that's and also just being noticed at all at that level is you know very powerful because you know I you've, I'm sure you've done this a million times, but I I remember once when I was out in L.A. and I was at Norman Lear's company and I I walked into a room uh, in the lobby and there were about 40 guys who were blonde and six foot two and extremely handsome and and I felt small and brown and uh, and you know but there was a sign saying no actors past this point and I was able to walk past this point and all those blue eyes well, turned in my direction people. and uh, and I thought one of those guys one of those guys is going to have his life changed and everybody else is going to go home and some of them become lawnmowers or something like that. But that's the risk to have the Church of Scientology come along, you know, maybe in that same room, and passing out brochures saying that we can help you. And, and by the way, on the brochure, they might have a picture of Tom Cruise or somebody like that. It's a very powerful lure. And here's people who say to you, you are different. Just be different. Just accept it. Don't fight it. Where you're going to go right now is extremely unusual for the average person. It's going to be a very rarefied atmosphere. Stay calm in the pocket, and you're going to throw the football 100 yards down the field. You're going to score the winning touchdown. Don't get in the way of your own success. Mm -hmm. And I have seen many of the people I know who are really prominent in Scientology. They just, that's what it did for them. What clarity was for them was, this is who I am, and I'm not going to... And anybody that tried to make you think what you were doing was less valid or less mm-hmm. substantial or less meaningful or it was silly or whatever, these guys look at what they do. And when you're saying, mm-hmm. what do they get out of it? There is, you know, this is, you know, a sense of solidity of your identity. Belonging. And uh, what's so confounding about Scientology in many ways is that, you know, it promises you to, that you will become more yourself... And that you will achieve all this uh, freedom of thought, and that you you know you you'll become saner and healthier and so on. But shed your past. What happens so often is the very opposite. You know, you be kind of you you become kind of enslaved to the mentality of, and you're not allowed to think freely. 
You know, one of the things that was so striking to me about Paul Haggis, who is a very skeptical, imaginative, curious person, but he was in the church for 35 years, and for 34 of those years, he never heard a disparaging word about Scientology. He never looked on the Internet. He never read any of those stories because he was told not to, and he didn't. He was just as obedient as all those other people because he was told it, it was where a good Where did all of his intellectual curiosity go regarding that? Yeah. What is the thing you're working on now? Well, I'm I'm doing. Uh, you know, I did, I did another book about uh, Camp David, the Carter Bagans the Dot thing, which you know, had a play, and and I'm now going to do it as a movie for HBO, and I'm doing a pilot for HBO on Texas politics, right? And uh, I'm working with Bob Balaban on a play about the making of the movie Cleopatra, which is the thing that I have been having the most fun with. And I'm going to write about ISIS. So those are well, Okay, that, that, that's what I wanted to talk right. to about. Uh, when you say, I'm going to write about ISIS. Yeah. I can't talk about it too much. Okay. There, but, but I, is this more about religious fanaticism for you? Well, it, in part it is. I'm fascinated by the, the fact that the entire fabric of civilization can simply be ripped away. And, you know, that barbarism is just under the sheets and in, in, in most grotesque fashion. You know, we, we look back in the 20th century and you see Nazism and people, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, now it's happening again. It's a mystery when these things occur that human nature can encompass such savagery. But it's right there in front of you and it's, and it's also – um, it, it's it's a fact of human nature that people are drawn to it, and that's what arouses my curiosity. Do you think that when you look at ISIS, do you think that people? I just want to get your general comment about this. Do you think that people over there, uh, ISIS, I should say, and and whoever the next ISIS is, it seems to have another. Uh, they seem to be opening up a new show over there every eighteen months or a year. Um, do you think that? They just hate our guts that the United States viewed as a hero, the United States viewed as an answer, the United States viewed as a good guy. Is this just more of people wanted to send us some kind of message about U.S. foreign policy? I don't think it has as much to do with us, although I think Iraq, our adventures in Iraq were, was, the, you know, the, that's what broke the egg. And and I don't think we would be looking at what we're seeing now. But what the whole region, what worries me about ISIS is that everything that holds the Middle East together is breaking apart. The the states are failing. You know, I've been in Syria before, and it was, to me, the least religious Arab country that I'd ever been in. So it's quite surprising to see, you know, this Islamist uh, savagery going on right there. And, and there it, of all places. It, it, yeah, I just, I was, I was taken aback by it. But, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Egypt and Saudi Arabia and, and places like that. And I know that they're not strong, resilient governments, and they are very fractured societies. And uh, in that environment, we saw what happened in Iraq, you know, just almost overnight, uh, this band of marauders uh, takes over an area the size of the United Kingdom. Well, Jesus, you know, how did that happen? And will it spread? Will these societies be able Because we can't stop it. It's going to be up to uh, Sunni societies in the Arab world 
to stop it themselves, and I don't have confidence that they can. Mm. That's what concerns me. The problem becomes when you identify yourself so much with your religion rather than your country or your family or so on. That becomes the sole basis of your identity. And it's a real problem in Europe right now for marginalized young men who don't feel like they are a part of French society, for instance. You know, there may be 8 to 10 percent of the population of France is Muslim. Sixty percent of the prisoners are. So can you imagine a better example of how marginalized uh, a a group of people is in a country? And clearly France has done a horrible job of trying to integrate these people into their societies. And it's not just the fault of the French government. I'm holding, you know, those Muslims responsible as well for not participating more fully in the countries that have adopted them. But this is a this is a profound problem and it's going to last a long time. And I feel, you know, that we can't solve it ourselves. And if we try to solve it, it'll it'll rebound on us in a profound way. I'm not saying we should disengage entirely, but we should be honest about the limits of our ability to resolve a problem that is essentially a function of the societies that it's in. I know you're not a writer in the Halberstam tradition where you're going to inhabit some institution, but if I can be so bold as to recommend the next fanatical reality that Lawrence Wright should inhabit and write a book about, I'd love to see your book about the Pentagon. Oh, that's an interesting idea. I'd love to see you write a book about the Pentagon from top to bottom. You'll give me the rights to do it with HBO. I can play Petraeus or someone. We'll have a great time. Well, that'd be great. we'll We'll have a lot of fun. So you're attached. I'm attached. I'm, 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 <laughs> right. I, I, I think I'm, I'm such a fan of your writing. That's an easy yes. The answer yeah. is yes, I'm attached. Okay, that's good to know. If you also appreciate Lawrence Wright's work, there's a lot more to consume. Nine books, five plays, countless articles. The documentary film based on his book, Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief, is currently available on HBO On Demand and HBO Go. And if you're ever in Austin, you might be able to catch him playing keyboard in the blues collective Hoodoo. Wright said of playing in a band, quote, I decided a while ago that I would only do things that are really important or really fun. This is really fun. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone.
I'm Tom Colicchio, host of Citizen Chef. You may know me as the judge on Top Chef. You know, last season on Citizen Chef, we dove deep into topics ranging from disaster relief and various injustices inherent in our food system. I hope you're as excited as I am to jump back in. So starting this May, you can tune in to hear from experts on a wide range of issues that you, with your fork and your dollars, have the power to change. Listen to Citizen Chef on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your favorite shows.